0: You don't have to be moving out to enjoy this episode. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week we will be discussing Billy Joel's 1977 album, The Stranger. Uh, kind of a random pick, not tied to anything, but the reason we're doing it is because we both had the fortunate opportunity to see Billy Joel this past weekend because he came to Baltimore's M&T Bank Stadium, where the Ravens play, co-headlining with Stevie Nicks and... Um, it was a fantastic concert from both of them, but we wanted to share our experience of the show with you from at least, and we figured, well, great time to do a Billy Joel album since we haven't done him yet.
1: Yeah, coming out of that concert. When we said, let's do Joel going into the concert, I was like, all right, but coming out of that concert, this was this was a nice it was, it was just a super fitting time. You're right. It was a, a beautiful album after a crazy beautiful concert if you guys have not seen billy joel this was my first time i'd always heard i knew he was a showman i knew he was a beast a a legend you know a living legend but hell of a show and it was a co-headliner show so i expected a little less not as far as his energy or musicianship but i didn't expect the amount of songs we got and was super happy about that
0: Yeah, no, he uh, he was up there for two hours. He did a whole set and he did a lot of songs. He might do a few more during some of his other shows, but he gave us a lot in that time. He did 21 songs.
1: It was it was amazing.
0: Not nothing. And Stevie Nicks did 15. So, yeah, we got close to 40 songs all night.
1: And how old is Billy Joel now? He's 74.
0: Be... He's 74.
1: He didn't look one bit of 74. No. And it, it was the coldest night we've had so far in Baltimore. And, of course, we're in Raven Stadium, so the wind's going, you know. It's going to get cold in there. And Billy Joel's in his scarf and a p- gray pea coat. <laughs> oh, man, he was looking good. But he didn't look – I'll tell you what, he didn't look any bit of that. And he moved like he was 40. Yeah. <laughs> that's That's a huge compliment there, you know yeah oh, he, and, he is uh amazing
0: yes I'd seen Billy Joel twice before this it had been a while though it was like that the last time was in 2016 and the energy this time was on another level like it was definitely the best performance I've seen of his because I don't even remember him getting up from the piano when I saw him before but this time he did at times
1: that surprised me and then of course if I remember correctly, and, and I had my my fair share of drinks that day. But <laughs> if I remember correctly, the first time he got up, he started dancing and uh, like Mick Jagger. And yep. they, did, they did a stone song, which was amazing. Or, or at least a little snippet of a stone song. Yeah, so. he did. He did a bit of start me up for us. But he danced around the stage and he like he moved across the stage. He didn't just dance in place like he was getting at it. Oh, no. And uh, his band was killer too. Oof, man, man, they were killer. Especially, um,
0: there was a woman I' so mad I can't remember her name right now.
1: But the, la- the lady who did in the middle of the night, yes. Oh man, that was amazing. Wait,
0: yeah. Oh yes, her name is Crystal. It says on the set list. I'm glad that I have that. So. Yes, in the middle of the river of dreams, she did a rendition of uh, "River Deep, Mountain High." That was amazing, and she was introduced yeah. as playing multiple instruments. i mean, "Well, this lady's on another level. She's incredible. She was the highlight of his band for me. I, he, she was fantastic." Yes,
1: yeah, she was everywhere, man. She was playing hand percussion. She was, she was everywhere. It was amazing.
0: Yes, but. Uh, we're not here to talk about the River of Dreams, really, because that was the only song from that album he did. But um, rather, to amplify our experience, we'll be doing one of the most represented albums at the concert, which is The Stranger. He did four songs from it this night. I'm kind of surprised he didn't do even more, actually. But
1: <laughs> Yeah, especially the way this album is packed with yes. songs that have resonated for him.
0: Yeah, this is practically a Greatest Hits album, but it did take some time to get there. So, uh, believe it or not, 1977, Billy Joel was not really a popular artist. His only really major hit up to that point had been Piano Man. And uh, he was underselling for Columbia Records. His prior album, Turnstiles, had only peaked at number 122 on the Billboard 200. And these albums that weren't as successful did end up selling a lot more later on because of the success here, but it just wasn't sure. It's like, why is Billy Joel doing this? Like what, what's he going to do? You know? Yeah. Cause he, he, it didn't seem like he was a somebody.
1: I, but- I feel, and we're going to talk about it a bunch, but I feel like that chip is on his shoulder in his creative process. And that's why for me, he relates to the every man so much, you know?
0: Yeah, most definitely, but uh, he just had a lot of killer songs in here, and the big sticking point for him was he really wanted to record with his touring band, and a lot of producers just didn't want to do that with him, and so he was getting rid of people in the team who wouldn't let him do that. He wouldn't even record with George Martin, the Beatles producer, because of the fact that he wouldn't let him play with his band. He said, no, you need session musicians.
1: Is that because, uh, I should know the answer to this, but maybe you do. Is that because the labels are hiring these session musicians on a multi-album contract kind of thing? Or is that because they feel in, you know, they know they're going to do the job?
0: Probably a bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I've never, I don't know how if musicians are contracted to a particular label or not that's not something i've really Heard. looked for
1: good for him though good for him stand behind your band especially if you're the everyman piano man like literally that's what the world knows of him at this point uh this would always seem to be a, a dive into his own early just playing piano bar piano um so that's what the world knows of him good for him for sticking up and being like you know he hasn't sold millions of records yet but He's still standing behind his band. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, because he was a decent concert draw. His live shows were well-regarded by this point. So he even got to play Carnegie Hall in the summer before this album was released. There you go. So he was not a nobody, but he was not the superstar he would become as a result of this album. And so he ended up going with Phil Ramone, not related to the band, the Ramones, but a major label guy, tons of credits. At this point, his most well-known production recently was Paul Simon's Still Crazy After All These Years, which had won a Grammy for Album of the Year. So Billy Joel did get a legitimate big producer, maybe not the Beatles producer, but certainly a name to have. And It was the beginning of a long association, fortunately. And so, yeah, the album was released in September of 1977, and it was a bit slow going, but it was a very steady seller throughout 1978. And at this point, it has gone diamond. So uh, over 10 million copies sold in the United States. Actually, it's now 11 times platinum. Wow. Yeah, not surprising. And uh, it's his only studio album to have done this. A few others have come close, but not quite. Though they might in the near future. Who knows?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a legendary album. This is one. This, You know what? I'm going to hot tea take. First hot tea take of, of the show today. I'm going to say this was the hardest album to take myself out of and try to listen to it like it was the first time I had heard the album because <laughs> there, it's every track on this album has automatic switched your brain into classic mode you know uh, you songs that you've lived by and loved for so many years uh it's it's such a great album man such a great album
0: yeah these songs I mean this album was released before both of us were born but these songs have just not gone anywhere this practically is a greatest hits album because even the songs that weren't singles have become staples in their own right, being featured in movies, shows, getting radio play. So this just ended up being that perfect recipe for Billy Joel to become the Billy Joel. We know him today as today. Yeah. Uh,
1: New York's golden boy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) that's real. That was him. That was Billy Joel in 1977, the beginning of where he is today, because we don't have him playing stadiums and MSG every month without The Stranger. I heard that. But it was him who got him there. It was going to happen. And what I find so interesting is um, him and Elton John are very much compared a lot, and they have um, I mean, they've toured together. They get all these things, but Really, Joel took off as Elton John was going into a bit of a lull, which I find interesting because John's Cla- Elton John's classic period really ended in 1976. While Joel was still the up and comer, John was on top of the charts. But at this point, we see a big shift. And I've always found that interesting.
1: Yeah, that, it's so wild to think. I'm trying to think of reasons why, other than the music, just where America was. But for me, he transcends time. Really, like he's a timeless character. Uh, it's and being such a powerful singer songwriter, it's so wild to see a timeless character like that. I'm gonna say you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that doesn't know at least one Billy Joel song, or more so, anyone who doesn't like Billy Joel. I mean, you know. he he
0: does have his detractors
1: they exist
0: but his songs are beloved by many and that's really what matters at the end of the
1: day yeah the detractors are still listening and tapping their toes to only the good die young or you know (laughs) there's nobody out there that hasn't had a moment with billy joel's music It's, it's such a huge accomplishment
0: most definitely and um Yeah, with that being said, I'm ready to get into this one.
1: Okay, let's go.
0: Before you forget, be sure to subscribe to us wherever you're listening, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, we are on all of them. And also follow us on social media at Turntables and Tea Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Turntables Tea on the app formerly known as Twitter X. That's where you'll get updates on all of our latest episodes and whatever the heck else we feel like posting. All right, so the album begins with uh, moving out Anthony's song. This has been described as a commentary on upward mobility. (laughs) Um, If that's moving up, then I'm moving out. Uh, This was a single, unsurprisingly. I think it was, it was the second single. I'm so unprepared today, (laughs) Um, but second single. And it, uh, Billy Joel has said that it was inspired by his working class background, which you can definitely hear. And I think that's a big part of what makes the song so authentic. Like when I hear this, I really just imagine that Italian, New York scene, uh, even though Italian's not really Billy Joel's heritage, this is more German, but I just can really imagine that, like you can picture a music video for this song in your head, just listening to it. And on top of that, it's catchy as anything. I mean, you can't get this one stuck in Albia. You're just gonna be, you you see a Cadillac, you're gonna sing Cadillac, act ac, ac.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you will, you will. I'm right with you on that. This and it opens the album with such a really, like you said, true and character-driven piece. It seems this piece this whole composition seems so lived in and that's for me why it it hits so automatic. I mean, outside of the music itself, just the, the lyrics in here, it's, it's so lived in. It's so real. It's, it's so, you know, your local cop, your local guy, it, it, he was living it but he was also mad at it and that's where it came from you know he was looking at these people working tirelessly and and we see this come up a lot in this album of him being like stop running the rat race you have your whole life but more so here seeing people in his community trying to work non-stop just to get better things and move into the different areas of town and whatnot and he understood, or it seems so to me, that it wasn't all about that. And and it, if that's it, he's out of there, you know. Um, but as far as a musical composition, not only is it an earwig, but it is so almost borderline for me, like theater, Uh, As far as the way the music goes through this, it's characteristic of Joel and a lot, especially a lot on this album. But this one, man, you have that syncopated rhythm the whole way through and it's that hustle and bustle going on. It never really leaves until the car starts, which is genius. Um, You get that New York feel. You get the same kind of New York feel that I get from listening to Nas talk, you know, New York State of Mind. That kind of lived in because you were there type stuff you, you don't get that all the time and you get that from great singer songwriters like billy joel
0: yeah and it's interesting you mentioned the theater because um billy joel actually credits the theater for helping the song stay popular throughout the years because um the choreographer twyla farp um took billy joel's songs and created a musical about them entitled moving out after the song and uh he said, like, she really thought of it in a way that I never would have. Like, what happens to Anthony after he works at the grocery store? And so, and it, it's been a successful musical. I don't think it's running anywhere currently. Um, If anybody out there is listening, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe it is. But it's helped the song be enduring. And it was the second song that he did at the concert and the great, place for that for sure right after my life both great album opening tracks and to hear one after the other I think was a great starter for it all
1: oh yeah <laughs> we're going back we're gonna <laughs> we have a whole podcast that we can do on that but yeah this this is amazing opener anytime but especially on this album
0: oh yeah definitely uh one of the best album openers of this decade easily of the 70s
1: yeah, the, the, the saxophone piece in here lives in my head oh, rent-free. Yeah. It has for years upon years.
0: Yes. Well, definitely an all-time classic sax solo for sure. And uh with that, I mean, what else is there to say about moving out? It's just a classic all around. But uh, we are gonna move on to the next song, which is our title track, The Stranger, which uh Billy Joel hasn't even said exactly what inspired it. He said it could be. Like um, if you could be interpreted as someone who's schizophrenic, which uh I choose not to go down that route because that's a really depressing route to go down. But um it could very well be about his relationship at this time, is I think the most common interpretation amongst uh people amongst the Joel fans. We'll we'll talk more about his wife on other songs here, but um overall this is. You know, this is just one of those songs that really fits its title. It has this somewhat ominous piano intro, and then we go into that, this steady city feel. Like it's hard to describe it if you're not listening to it. But it's a very steady groove and uh, somewhat ominous, but not enough so that it's going to take you out of the fact that this is a Billy Joel album. It's still in that, but. I've always enjoyed this song. I've always thought it was a very just neat song to listen to. It's hard to, you know, I guess we all have a stranger in ourselves, I guess. I think everyone can relate to it, too. So there's that.
1: I think I think you hit the nail on the head right there. For me, that's the song is we all put on these masks, regardless of what they're made of or what they do throughout life. Uh, or I'll say everyone in this song, but it's relatable because ultimately it happens. Uh, I think the stranger is everyone, but also the stranger here when he's saying, you know, the stranger m- might not always be wrong or, or might not always be evil is really the truth of the everyone behind it uh, and and hiding behind these masks. It reminds me going through these listens, I'm, maybe it's just these these wild parallels but it reminds me of uh the fujis the mask it was that same type of uh sentiment there where it was like you know just take the bullcrap off but here this mask even though it might be bullcrap sometimes it's not always and it is the stranger and the stranger is is ever present as crazy as that rant just sounded um that's the way this song has always made me feel this opening riff though man this mimic style of of piano then then followed by this this shadow of this whistle is it's cinematic man i'll tell you it's not only is it cinematic but recording a whistle especially a melodic whistle like that is a feat that is not is not attainable by the every band uh it is it is a tough one there so kudos to him on that but it you're right. You get this this again, you get the city feel, you get this lived in feel uh, throughout this composition. I love the bridge when it breaks off and it's just this triangle ringing in the background. Uh, it, it, I love that we get that, I think, right around the two minute market. That's always been a cool piece of this composition for me. It's just a beautiful. You, you you know, you said, uh, what did you say? Chilling or uh, ominous a bit. Omin, ominous. It, it does feel ominous, but it automatically makes you feel. I don't know if it's the human aspect of that whistle or that even on the piano piece, it just something about this song always gives me goosebumps.
0: I feel like it's sit the back. I feel like this would like soundtrack, like a black and white detective movie or something.
1: <laughs> I always think of the original live action, uh, incredible Hulk where Bruce <laughs> Banner is walking away. Uh, I always picture that when he does this whistle, it's not, maybe if I'm reaching it, it's, it's sort of, uh, the same melodically, but it, it always reminds me of that for some reason. It is definitely cinematic in some way.
0: Yeah. And, um, it was a single in Japan where it made it up to all the way to number two on the charts. Not a single here in the U.S., but uh, still a really beloved album track. Again, like this is a song that's really well known, even if it wasn't a single. And um, not the first example of that on this album, not even the most well known example of it. But um, before we get to any more non-singles, we have to talk about the single, which is the, the biggest of them all just the way you are. Um, he wrote this song for his wife at the time, Elizabeth, who was also his manager. So uh, definitely an interesting relationship right there. And um, I read a by, I started reading this biography of Billy Joel by um, Fred Shewers. I hope that I pronounced that correctly. And uh, in that story, he at a restaurant said to her, "Like I wrote you this song for your birthday. And she asked, So I get the publishing, too, right? (laughs) Man. And he thought she might have been joking, but it sounds like uh, no, she was not. And uh, she was not happy to not get the publishing (laughs) because this song was a massive hit. But uh, Billy didn't hear it that way. Uh, He did say in hindsight, it should have told him the marriage was doomed, but he was just focused on getting this record out. And um, him and the band, they thought it was like a girly song. They were like, this doesn't fit in with what we're doing. What We don't need this on the album. But um, during the sessions for it, uh, Phil Ramone championed it a bit more, and he actually had two singers, Phoebe Snow and Linda Ronstadt, listen in on this, and... Uh, they both told him he'd be crazy to not include it on the album with Ron sat out saying that's a hit record. And, uh, he just said, well, shows you what I know about making a hit record. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> uh, but he knew to listen to the pros and he did. And, uh, this was a huge hit. This made it all the way up to number three on the hot 100 in 1978. And, uh, it's become really one of the most well-known 20th century love songs at this point. Um, It is interesting though. It's not one he plays often live and it's not even that he dislikes it. It's just, uh, just not for him to do, I guess. But when you're Billy Joel, you have enough songs to choose from that you can get away with not playing this one as popular as it is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I gotta imagine that it's not, his favorite song to play because you know, a part of him lives inside of it in inside of his classic singer songwriter, this song was written for his ex and it was a divorce that he wasn't happy about, regardless of how amicable they say it might've been. But, uh, regardless it is the classic love song for me. It's, it's up there. Definitely top five love songs of the, of all time. In my opinion, it has, everything a classic love song needs you know it's got some beautiful uh piano it's got beautiful saxophones you know that slow sax uh i mean billy Joel's playing on the fender Rhodes here so it it might come off as a synthesizer but it's more so like a piano that's using instead of like hammering on uh strings or hammering on on wires it's using strings inside and that's where we get that unique sound uh, it's such a cool, wild composition with like the backing vocals. For me, they're almost like haunting, and it's it's really like a dream-like. The percussion is super dreamlike for me. Uh, but it's always something that has stuck with me, and the percussion more so has stuck with me throughout. And it's always one where I go back, and every single time I pick out a new little thing, and I love that about this song. Um. Yeah, man, classic, classic set the mood song right here. This this, <laughs> this was the mold. This was the mold. You can hear so much inspiration throughout love songs, especially in that era after this, in my opinion, too. It's it's a beautiful one.
0: Yeah, it's um and it's interesting about the composition. I do think it's a neat one, and I think that because of it, even though this is a love song and most of the songs there really are, and if they are there more cynical than this one, let's say. I feel like that composition helps it fit in on the album. Like Billy says, this doesn't fit in, but I think what they were working on musically helped it fit in and not detract from it, even if it was more romantic than the other songs here. But because this is still Billy Joel, the angry young man, it's not complete sap because of who's writing it, so. Yeah, I like just the way you are. Uh not everybody does. I think it's a song considered to be overplayed by a lot of people. But I've al- I've always enjoyed it. But um w- we are going to go into a very different mode with our next track. Scenes from an Italian restaurant. This is a uh multi-part suite actually inspired by um the Abbey Road medley. Was the which I can definitely hear because it is very much um different vignettes in one. Uh
1: have you ever seen him and Paul break this down?
0: I have not actually. I gotta
1: send you the video. It is phenomenal. It it, it is wild <laughs> when he breaks it apart and you just chuckle listening to it. It's it's cool.
0: Yeah, it is um quite a song. Like there's just multiple parts to it, of course. Like we've got bottle of red, bottle of white, uh, and this. Italian restaurant setting where he was having dinner with his manager and that inspired him to give that the setting and the first part of it that um, really predates this album is the Brenda and Eddie story about these people who were popular in high school and uh, uh, like what became of them and that part actually dates back to the very early 70s but it was its own thing and didn't all come together until now and it was originally just called the Ballad of Brenda and Eddie. And it takes up most of the song. And uh, he also talks about himself a bit with, like, things are okay with me these days. Um, But just, yeah, these different pieces to it all. And it's like, these are disparate ideas, but yet somehow they just beautifully come together in a way that, I mean, as I'm speaking, it doesn't make sense, but when you listen to it, it's perfect.
1: Perfect is, is the word there, man. I mean... How could it not be any, any more perfect? This is the linchpin of the al- album in my, in my opinion.
0: Definitely a uh, bunch of the way, like the Abbey Road medley is that this just has Billy Joel kind of all in one. I feel like, and uh, he's even called it his favorite song that he did, which isn't hard to believe at all. I mean, cause it's quite an accomplishment and uh, never a single, but obviously immediately picked out by people because it's like yeah too long for top 40 yes but there's no ignoring the craft of it and it was ranked in 2021 number 324 on the greatest songs of all time by
1: rolling stone has to be i mean it's yeah. it's a mini movie in a song you know yep. you, you get a, a little intro you get two f- high school friends meeting uh in an italian restaurant And then at 144, we get this transition into this Dixieland jazz where they're just talking about how their lives are going. Uh, It's such it's so cool, man. Billy went to say or went on to say it was seven takes with him and other musicians putting together like three compositions. You could see it, but I love how it's seamless, so to speak, because, you know, they went through it and really hammered it all the way out. But I almost skipped over it. You cannot ever skip over the piano solo in this one for me. I'll go out on a limb and say it's my favorite Billy Joel piano solo, period. Right before the Ballad of Brendanetti strikes off, he murders it like nobody else does, and I love that. And then, here we go, character-driven. It's wild, like, to really look at the way he writes these stories, these musical stories. We've gone now from looking into an Italian restaurant to being inside of a conversation with two high school friends, to I, I think still in that same conversation uh, that I've always taken it that way, but now into this story of, of old uh, high school sweethearts that unfortunately didn't make it all the way through. But it's such a such a beautiful, beautiful composition. This has always been such a mind-blowing song for me coming from him. It's it really does it goes to another theater level for me, or just a very cinematic level of writing, and and that's that's what he does. That's what he gets down on. This is this is, and it's it's the end of the first half of this album. Like, I can only imagine getting this day one, and that being the end of the first side. Me like, holy shit! Flip this over. Let's go. It's such a it's such a wild piece, man.
0: Yeah. And I mean, this song, so interestingly, I don't know if everybody knows this, but the last album that Billy Joel recorded of new material was actually an all classical music album, which seems like a stretch. But when you think of a song like this, it really isn't. Yeah. In terms of a multi-part composition. But this is his longest non-classical song to this date. But I feel like it's, I think it's played at all of his live performances. Certainly was done when we saw it.
1: Yeah, he's he's a studied beautiful composer uh underneath all that New York Bronx mystique or or, or you know <laughs> showmanship there is a there is a genius composer underneath and it shows yeah and the classical stuff that that just isn't an, another showing of, of that talent that that's there under this machismo from the Bronx <laughs>
0: yeah but um yeah just what a wild and beautiful song yeah man. Uh, but yet yeah, we do flip side two over and you might wonder, well, how are we going to continue from that, our seven and a half minute epic song? But uh, we are going to. And the first track um to do that is Vienna, uh, which my favorite comment of the whole concert was Billy Joel introducing the song, saying song I'm about to do for you was not a big hit. This is Vienna. <laughs> and I was just done because it's like okay everybody knows vienna i feel like um yeah uh it's actually his i'm reading this here his fourth most streamed song on spotify wow that's I mean, cool and uh, our friend they even said, to "Me be like this has been in a lot of movies like yeah i remember it was in 13 going on 30s specifically heard that uh with jennifer garner which that has a great soundtrack that movie by the way um not a bad song on that one, but uh, yeah, it was inspired by the town of Vienna, and it's very piano-based. I guess that's more of that classical influence, but I feel like musically it's kind of a somewhat standard piano ballad, but I think it's a really beautifully done song lyrically, like just to give that voice, like, slow down, you're doing fine, Vienna waits for you. Just what a beautiful sentiment to put in a song, like just to take some time and smell the roses, but in beautiful poetry, I think, but not in a way that's hard to understand. And um, it's not hard to tell why this song is still so beloved all this time later. And it's a great movie soundtrack song, too. So why wouldn't we use it in films?
1: Uh, yeah, it is. And the composition, I'm with you there. Uh, or, as far as the musical composition goes, it, it is sort of standard. And standing alone, it wouldn't jump out and bite you. But the way that he writes and, and, and makes the, that sentiment that you were talking about, the slow down, really, this metaphor for old age it, is genius. For me, I say, that this is an an exact parallel to the start of side one of the album, um, except saying the same thing, except this way, saying it in a softer way, you know, (laughs) it's still this like, calm down. You don't have to push everything into a couple years of life. Like Vienna will wait for you. This old beautiful Austrian town known for its age and beauty is going to wait for you. And it really, it, uh, I can't drive it home enough how much that parallel sticks here, sticks the landing here, um, opening up with such a soft vibe on this side, but saying such a powerful, powerful, making such a powerful, powerful statement inside of the opener. I, I, this is a good one, man. I think it was tongue-in-cheek when he said that. I think that was him messing around uh, as far as it's not a big hit, but uh, it definitely is is for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. And um, hearing him say Vienna, everybody in the stadium went wild to hear. like, yes, Vienna! Oh, yeah. It like, this pull, was a pull, song pull. people were waiting to hear. And I'm really... And it's like the previous two times I saw him, he did this thing where he said, I'm going to give you all a fielder's choice. You can do Summer Highland Falls from Turnstiles or Vienna. And obviously Vienna won both times. That. I mean I felt like Billy you really didn't make that too complicated of a choice <laughs>
1: yeah, for real he was not trying to play the ladder <laughs> uh, yeah clearly
0: not it's like are you sure you were even prepared to do the ladder with that because right. <laughs> I mean
1: <laughs> that's that's the showman he is he's he's gambling on that yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but good I
0: was kind of no I was glad this time he just came out and did I was like yeah don't have suspense for us you're gonna do vienna come on I heard that and he did the same thing with um the longest time he had it up against like keeping the faith obviously the longest time one
1: like yeah, he, know. he knows <laughs>
0: i'm just i'm glad he just dropped that act that i was like don't play games with us you know there you,
1: go. there you go he only had two hours he had to give it to us straight
0: <laughs> good give it to us straight just do do your thing and uh but i'll never complain about hearing vienna ever so um what a great song but uh, and another song that i will not complain about hearing ever is only the good die young uh a more humorous side of billy but um also the most controversial song here so this was a uh single in february of 1978 and it actually didn't do that well at first, but some religious groups and folks heard this song and were like, oh, this is really offensive because he's lusting after a Catholic schoolgirl." girl. And um, Billy Joel has said to himself, really, it's a pro-lust song, not an anti-Catholic song. And also the guy doesn't get the girl. That's which the is,
1: thing. I, I'm yeah. biting my tongue over here because I don't want to go off on of one of my, everybody knows I'm going to do like, you got to be kidding me! Are you joking me? This is the song you chose to go up against? Like, oh man, this is the hill that they wanted to die on. I love it. I love it. He doesn't even get the girl. He doesn't even get what he wants in the song. That that sort of sounded a little worse when it came out of my mouth just now, but like it's it's such one. It's such a beautiful musical composition. You know, it's it's a toe tapper jam piece. I don't care who you are, but. It's totally not that song. It's don't try to make it something it's not good for him keeping his head above that, but like, get out of here. I mean, all it did is boost album sales yep. from what I've read, you know, <laughs> but yeah. get so out of he here. Gave a hat. <laughs> go, go find some songs that are truly effed up and fly your flag on that. <laughs> don't fly yeah. your flag on New York's Golden Boy. <laughs>
0: I, I think the Führers died down by this point, at least, though, because you gotta. Um, but it's funny, actually, when he appeared as the musical guest on SNL, the producers were asking him to not play this song, but he did really? it anyway. Oh, but shit. Billy Joel yeah. was actually the least of their problems because of, right before he played this song, he saw a verbal altercation between Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. So. Oh, wow. SNL had their own problems uh, <laughs> that were not related to this song, but yeah, the one story my mother tells me was she went to Catholic high school and this song was banned at her prom.
1: Really? Yeah, I never kn- I never knew about this this whole deal until reading up on this album. That I don't know, man. I just, it's, it seems like a reach. Not not so that-
0: tongue in cheek. That's the thing. Like yeah,
1: yeah. I'm not even trying to think with the brain of now, because now it doesn't... No one even looks at it twice, but back then... I don't know. It's a tough one. I have to to ask my folks about that one. That's wild to hear that it was banned from a prom. Yeah. Uh,
0: It was controversial enough for that, but...
1: This is a radio staple now. (laughs) Oh,
0: yeah. (laughs) And I mean, my mom's always said, like, I just... It's a growing up cap but she always said no this is a joke song it's not meant to be taken seriously
1: (laughs) it's a party song you know what i'm saying like it the horns are blaring the sax is going nuts it's i mean it's it's a it's try not tapping your toe or or putting a smile on to only the good die young you know oh yeah
0: and uh, what was pretty cool he did i think this one is done at every show too understandably but The times I saw him before it was part of the encore, but this time it was in the middle of the show. But I thought it was a nice pick me up after some slower songs. uh, Agreed. And was well placed in there. And um,
1: Same on this album. It's perfectly paced coming off Vienna because you left flipping over from Italian restaurant. So you get Vienna and you're like, okay, it's still a beautiful song, but it's slow. And then boom, you're right back into rocking. And even rocking with that acoustic guitar over top. I love that. I love that sound.
0: Yeah. And interestingly, I read this was originally written as a reggae style composition, which is weird to think about, but. um,
1: (laughs) That would be wild.
0: That was fortunately changed during conception. The story goes that Billy's drummer liberty the veto actually said are you really gonna do it like this are you gonna sing in an accent (laughs) like you're from long island
1: oh oh that would i would have paid money to see that oh yeah (laughs) if
0: i could be a fly on the wall for the recording of this song (laughs) Uh,
1: billy if you're listening add that into your msg repertoire (laughs) just throw it up there one random night for some beautiful folks to see
0: the, the reggae version of Only how, the good die
1: <laughs> yeah. how amazing would that be just sitting in Madison Square on a Friday night and then seeing oh that would be super cool. <laughs> That's a wild tidbit. Thank you yeah. for that.
0: But I, I'm glad it didn't turn out that way. I think I love this like old timey rock and roll kind of style to it. I think it fits the song perfectly and I mean, I think it's a funny song. These are very clever lyrics. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It, 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 no way around the Catholic church. I mean, Calm down there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I'm counting on my rosary to this song. Cause it's a banger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm counting on my rosary. Thanking God for Billy Joel. That's what I'll be doing. I like it. Hopefully no one comes to bite my head off for that. There you go. But uh, yeah, but uh, the, the party is going to stop again. I'm afraid um, to slow it down for our cynical love song. She's always a woman. This is most definitely about his wife. And um, he wrote this because, like, he knew that his wife was a hard ass. Like, she was very tough in business and she negotiated on his behalf, often successfully, but it did rub people the wrong way. And uh, she was not popular amongst everybody. And this song, he was saying, like, I know how she is, but she's always a woman to me and I love her. And uh, so, definitely one of the darkest love songs ever written it's like uh, this woman you're describing sounds really manipulative and horrible but yet you still love her and because of that there's people this is another controversial song people have seen it as misogynistic and i think if you without context maybe you could think that but i don't think i think it's just about a particular kind of person that I think everyone encounters in their lives whether we uh, are in a relationship with them or not.
1: I, I always saw it the other way. As far as not so much, I can see the cynical with context now. But for me, it was this was always a neat way to imagine love for me. That's how I used to take it. It it was it was more so the faults didn't outweigh the the womanhood uh, of this of this woman that he's imagining through this narrative. But um, misogynistic is another. It's a real reach for me. I I, I would like to. I'll I look that. I didn't see the misogynistic stuff. I, I. Where are you going off of that? You know where where are you basing your your argument there? I, I'll I'll look back. I'm not saying it's not there for somebody to interpret. It's art, and we always talk about the beauty of it being interpreted. However, it is. But that, that seems like a reach for me.
0: I mean, yeah, I guess uh, everybody has different experiences uh, to interpret these songs however they want. I was kind of surprised to not hear this one at the concert.
1: I was looking forward to hearing this one. I love this song.
0: Yeah, because whenever I heard it before, it was a real showstopper, and it was a legit hit for him. Number 17 on the Hot 100, higher than only the good Die Young, actually.
1: It's such a beautiful piece, man. It's put together... This is another one of this, these genius composition moments when you look deep, in my opinion, because you get that just naked Billy Joel voice with a very tiny accompaniment of the piano early on here. It it really is just what you want from a singer-songwriter, uh, in my opinion. You You get that beauty. And then he pairs this... So I thought this song was in like a traditional... Uh, three, four, like a waltz would be. And and it is, but without going too far into it, it, it always was this beautiful waltz for me that he was doing while he was imagining this girl. And it's there. And then you pair this waltz feel uh, with this feminine sound of the flute here. And it it just, it dazzles as a composition for me. I've always truly, truly loved this song. Uh, I was I was I was a little bit bummed. We didn't even talk about that that we didn't get to see this, but this is that jam. It doesn't have to be fast paced. It it really ca- it carries the weight the the rest of the album carries w- without having to to be in your face. Uh, I really enjoy that.
0: Yeah, and I also want to say one last thing about this song. I really enjoy his vocal performance on it because I think the sincerity really comes through more than anything. And I think it helps ground the song.
1: It's amazing.
0: Yeah, definitely a classic uh, and a deserved one for sure. And now we're going to go on to probably the least known song on this album, if there is one, Um, Get It Right the First Time, which is basically, yeah, you got to get it right when you meet somebody the first time. That's the whole concept of the song i would say it's like a mid-tempo kind of joint uh you know it's in the in between of only the good die young and she's always a woman uh beat wise um this is i'm afraid the gun to the head song it's not a bad song by any means it's fine but in comparison to the rest of this it's like a b-side song i mean it's catchy it can get stuck in your head it still has that going for it but just after all of these songs that we've heard so far, it's just, it just doesn't stack up to them. I feel like on a weaker album, it could very well be a highlight of the album, but this is the stranger we're dealing with. And here it's the gun to the head for me.
1: Yeah, we get this funky opening. Uh, even with the flutes, it has a, a funkiness of it. And then we transition at one minute into this bossa nova type feel uh from the funk but i'm with you as beautiful and well written as this song is like on paper it just it doesn't carry the weight of the rest of the that the rest of the album does it i can see where it could be a levity piece coming out of she's always a woman and being the penultimate track and i did read that joel didn't have a lot of um of songs to work with to pick and choose from for this it's not a terrible song but it's it's not it's not even anywhere near a crappy song exactly what you said it rings true for this as far as it could be a a hit somewhere else but unfortunately it's it's up with a lot of stuff here and for me the only job it, it got right is the little bit of levity we get uh leaving this album
0: yeah. And uh, honestly, I'm not sure we even needed it quite because I think the closing track would have fit just fine after She's Always a Woman because yep. it's another, more somewhat uh, slower meditative piece, but with a bit more of a gospel influence that it being everybody has a dream. Uh, yeah. The gospel feelings, the real takeaway from this, as that lovely choir of voices, one of, whom is Phoebe Snow, who we mentioned earlier. And this one, I think it's a song like everybody's kind of to quote another song about dreams, everybody's looking for something. Um <laughs> like everybody's got a dream and uh wants to do this, and yada yada yada. And um I think it's a very nice composition on that level, and I think it's a good way to close the album in that regard. However, I'm not sure how well it fits with the rest of the songs here. It, just for me, not... I don't think it's on the level of those first seven tracks, first of all, but regardless of that, it's not even... It's musicality. We have um, things of different styles throughout this album, we hear. But it's just... I think the content of the lyrics, it just seems like a bit out of place here. I'm not quite sure why, but it's a lovely song. I'm just and it ends things well, but it does stick out a bit.
1: We're right at the same place on the end of this album. It's it's near perfect as far as musicality goes of how you would always want to end the album, in my opinion. You know, it starts off small. It crescendos into this I wrote hallelujah for the everyman in my notes just because the gospelness of it is is overcoming. And where I talked about a parallel or even throughout, uh, you know, these these character driven pieces, um, these everyman pieces, even though it sings like that, it just doesn't seem to. Stick the landing for lack of better words the way moving out does or really the way the rest of the album does so it 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 sounds great but i'm with you the the lyrical content doesn't necessarily it, it it's not on the same level as the rest of the album yeah. you know it really isn't it, i i try to say it the nicest way i can and the most respectful way i can but it just it doesn't doesn't do its job musically it does musically it ends the album Perfect. Um, and if you're not really hardcore critically listening, you're probably leaving on a super high note. But after listening to the album like 15, 20 times this week, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't know, man.
0: I don't I was, know. Even from first listen, I've always thought this was just not up to the level of those first seven songs. I've always felt that way. Actually. But I'm with you.
1: It could have fit right behind. She's always a woman. You know? Oh
0: yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's still. I think this is one of those cases where the quest for quality is ruthless, and uh, yeah. um, when when we have this many killer songs around, we we got to be harsher on stuff that really we've discussed much worse songs on the podcast for sure than uh, either of these last two songs. But it's just we we have to look at it as a
1: whole. Yeah, but I mean. Silver Lining Playbook, hidden track. We get you know a little throwback to the stranger on the way yes. out. The album. So that's that's a cool piece, but I don't put that inside of judging this last song. Uh, but yeah, I don't cool, either, no, but it's cool to hear the stranger again on the way out. It just adds that cinematic vibe of almost this whole album,
0: yeah. No, he came through with a lot of beautiful stories for us and the world. Uh, this goes, um. Like I said, these songs have just always been there. I mean, I can't even imagine, like, I feel like it's a question for our parents, but it's like, can you imagine the world before these songs existed? Like, what what was it like? Uh, <laughs> it's just hard to not think of these songs as part of, like, the fabric of America.
1: Agreed. <laughs> at Very this well. Point. Very well put.
0: Uh, As it is with much of the Billy Joel songbook. And even some of the people who don't love all of his stuff, have to concede, like, The Stranger is really where it's at. Like, there was a woman that, um, my parents and I met on the light rail on the way to the concert. Uh, my parents attended, but they didn't sit with us. Uh, sorry if that makes me a bad son, but oops. Um, and, uh, We Didn't Start the Fire came up, and the one they said, yeah, I definitely prefer 70s Billy Joel to 80s Billy Joel. Though so I like We Didn't Start the Fire, but not everybody does.
1: Was that the fish girl? No, no different girl. I don't, I don't.
0: But, um, yeah, that's the what I thought of people not liking Billy Joel. A lot of it's because of We Didn't Start the Fire, actually. Yeah. A, a quite maligned song. I enjoy it, but uh, I don't think it's on the level of these songs, though, but <laughs> let, let's be real. Uh, Yeah, this one... Uh. I feel I feel like we kind of know how this is going to go, but uh, just the formality. What's your grade for the album?
1: <laughs> Stranger is a masterclass in songwriting. Uh, Billy Joel is a master composer. I, I tried not to make this whole podcast me just saying how genius of a composer, a musician he is, but this album. Um, doing my best to listen to it with a non-biased ear is is almost front to back flawless and flawless on a flawless on a level that we rarely get to listen to. in in this podcast, only, I only say that because of how trained he is. There's so much going, we could have spent three hours talking about the chord changes and the way, uh, that, that the compositions throughout this album are set up. Um, it, it's a very close to a flawless album for me. I give it an A.
0: Yeah, it's an A. I mean, was there a question? I felt like knowing it, it's like, this is, uh, I already knew going, it. it's like, well, this is obviously an A. And uh, yep, it's an A. I mean, even if the last two songs don't quite stack up, they're still not bad songs at all. And they could have completely sucked and it still could have been an A because those other songs are pretty close to flawless.
1: Yeah, it, it's not like it was an easy A, but it was, it, it just, it was an A, you know, I, I feel like it would be hard, I would love to see some counterpoints of where this album fails, and I would love to talk back and forth, uh, if somebody has that opinion, yeah. because I would like to see where it comes from, musically, it's just, I, I I tried, I tried to go in there and be like, nah, some of these have to be pretty empty, you know, we're just used to seeing them on commercials and stuff, now. Nah he he's he's a he's a master and he gave us a master class in in storytelling and in composition just in singer songwriter period
0: yep and after that billy after this billy joel was a stranger to no one
1: (laughs) heard that heard that
0: but now this might be a harder question what's your favorite song on the album
1: italian restaurant scenes from italian Uh restaurant it, it, it's not even it's not even hard for me. It's it's really the one that for me, I remember before the other ones. And that's crazy because look at the songs that are on this album. But that one, I don't know if it I mean, it was definitely played around my house when I was young, but I, I just have the, the memory of that song. It stuck with me for so long. I love it. It's it's such a mini movie. Uh I, it's it never gets old. I love seeing really good karaoke people do this. You know, oh, yeah. it, that's a jammer.
0: It's a fun one to hear at karaoke for sure. Um, but maybe this is childhood nostalgia peeking in the funny stories I heard about this song, but my favorite's only the good die young.
1: Yeah, man.
0: It's, it's just that great. Good time party song with a sense of humor, and uh, I love it.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard, to, you know, it's hard to, to say anyone stands above, but gotta be those.
0: I mean, yeah, though, though, it's not like I'm gonna fight you if you tell me she's always a woman's your favorite I, song. It's I, was gonna, like...
1: I was gonna say, What's your number two? Mine's She's Always a Woman, <laughs>
0: that, that's probably number two, but. No, moving out's number two. I do love moving out. See, any of them can be your favorite song. There's pretty much (laughs) not a wrong answer. It's fine. It's just,
1: it's fine.
0: And uh, I'm glad that we got to do this one-off, special one-off after the concert that we attended to talk about the stranger. Because I don't know when we would have discussed it uh, coming up honestly, besides if we hadn't had this opportunity
1: yeah man a much needed one that was cool
0: yeah and it's fun to go back and listen to those classic 70s albums because we don't always get to do them they're not always quite as popular amongst the listeners but they're a lot of fun to do though i think
1: darn skippy
0: (laughs) but um we are going to go back to reality and the real world next week um because folks we we have some major new releases uh what well one we're doing now is already up but we've got a couple of other major ones on the docket after that that um we are uh, at this point obligated to cover Th- that's just kind of how it is but we're also excited to cover them because there's um certainly going to be a lot to dive into but first off um one Ed Sheeran released a new album at the end of September titled Autumn Variations. And that is going to be the topic of our next episode. Um, I think it's pretty fitting to do what he did next after Subtract. He once worked with the same producer, Aaron Destner, and um in and his first album released on his own label, too.
1: There you go. So he, um he, he made me a new fan on Subtract, so
0: Yeah. Same here. And I think it's just, um, we'll, we'll discuss it more next week, but he's just at a really interesting point in his career right now that I don't think we're seeing with any other artist currently.
1: He's in Fortnite. My son and I were playing Fortnite, and a virtual like concert interactive thing was going on. It was wild, man.
0: Yeah. He he's just, yeah. At a very interesting place in 2023. And, um, I'm excited to dive more into that next week. I don't want to spoil it all here. So there's that. But, um, yep, until next time, we're, we're going to enjoy some autumn variations, I guess. What a, what a neat title there. But uh, we'll, we'll be living through some of them this month of October before we talk about the latest from Mr. Sheeran. So until then, just stay peaceful and variate.
1: Peace.